when did the church begin to be the church? I remember sitting through a class as a seminary student that was a semester long and for the entire semester we debated that question. Our conversations were guided by a textbook. I remember after reading that book and then participating in that class, I said to some friends, you know, we could really shorten that class and make it a little more meaningful. They said, well, how short? I said, about a week. <laughs> the textbook basically posed the idea that there were different views on when the church began. For many of us, we would say that took place at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descended and began to take up permanent residence in the lives of those new converts. You remember when Simon Peter preached his first public sermon. And I think a lot can be said about that experience. And yet others would say, no, it wasn't Acts chapter 2. It was really when God formed that intimate band of disciples that we know as the 12 apostles. That was the first church. Jesus being seen there as playing the part of the pastor's role, discipling those men and helping them understand their calling in life. Others would say, no, it wasn't when Jesus called the 12 disciples. It was much earlier than that. It was actually when God called Abram to leave his homeland and go to a distant place. And then through that man, changed his name to Abraham, he said, you're going to be the father of nations. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. So there was some debate made about the calling of Abraham, and yet others said, oh no, it began even sooner than that when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first family. And God fellowshiped with them and walked with them and shared with them in a life experience from day to day. That was really the first church. Well, I share that with you as an illustration to say to you, I don't know when the church began. I would probably say Acts chapter 2. Seems to be more weight and understanding there, but even aside from that, I can tell you when the church stops being the church. The illustration was about when does the church begin as a church. I don't know, but I can tell you definitely when the church stops being the church. And that is that when we forfeit or abandon or neglect our call to missions. If we ever do that, we cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to talk to you about the great missions event and I'll go ahead and tell you, it's the story of Christmas. You see, it's not coincidental that we promote the Lottie Moon Christmas offering at Christmas. Because when we celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world, we are really celebrating 
the first missionary. The first true understood missionary who's coming with the good news of God that is in Jesus Christ. And when churches become so self-focused that they turn inward, they lose their sight and oversight of what they're called to do. You and I are called to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all the nations. And then in the book of Acts, just prior to him ascending to heaven, we see it there as he says, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the call is very plain. But the challenge for us is to balance what we do as a collection, as a body of local believers, while at the same time keeping our eyes focused outwardly, outside the borders of these four walls. A young man and a girl were boyfriend, girlfriend, they were sharing in their first Christmas together. And the boy said to the girl, it's our first Christmas. Just think, this time last year, we didn't even know each other. And the girl said, I don't, don't dwell on the past. What I really want to talk about is my present. <laughs> well, the church can have a tendency to do that. To, to be so self focus that we forget of what we are called to do. A person on mission is a person who is sent with a purpose in mind. I didn't plan on this. I didn't know what video was going to be shown today, but I kind of think it affirming that our missionary that was focused in the video was a former NASA employee. He was a part of sending men into outer space. Well, think about the fact that NASA oftentimes names the sending of that team of people into space as a mission, right? They're being sent with a purpose in mind. They may go to experiment of what happens, the dynamics of, of what happens when things are exposed to outer space or how men and women can actually explore the, the realms of the galaxy and all that is opposed. I'm, I don't mean to speak derogatorily of NASA. I, you know, it's just... I'm an elementary person when it comes to that high scholarship. But it's a mission. And the same is true for us. I want you to see Jesus as the first great missionary. And it's found in a passage that you probably don't think of as a traditional Christmas passage. Paul is the author here. And it is a unique scripture. Uh, many people say, by the way, that Philippians chapter 2 was added after the letter was put together and saw it just fitting in between chapter 1 and chapter 3 and thought this is a good place for it. Others have said that it was a hymn and the early church sang these verses much like they did 1 Corinthians 13. But I see it fitting perfectly within Paul's understanding of what he wanted to communicate to the church at Philippi. I begin the reading at verse 5, Philippians 2 verse 5. Listen to what he said. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your, your translation may say uh, something worthy to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The first thing I want to remind you is that Jesus comes as an example for us as a great missionary because he said, I need to be with the people. I need to go be with human beings. Now, this, this is not a surprise to us. We know that in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph was contemplating his engagement to Mary, who was already announced was with child. And he was concerned. And Matthew says that an angel came to Joseph and said, Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. For the child that is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you remember in verse 23, the angel said, And you shall give him a name, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Quoting Isaiah 7, 14. Emmanuel, God with us. I refer back to the Great Commission that I just referenced earlier. When Jesus began to leave his disciples, he said, Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen now. And I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, think about what it meant when Jesus was born. They didn't recognize him or who he was, did they? I mean, I really would like to know if the innkeeper knew that Mary was conceived with the God-man Jesus, the baby, that perfect being that would come into this world, would he have really sent them out back to the stable? Or surely he would have said, I recognize the opportunity that is here, and even though all the other rooms that are here are occupied by guests, you can have my space. But surely he would have done that, right? I mean, even the merchants who were there, in Bethlehem, the folks who were just giving and exchanging, they were come to paying taxes and they were buying and selling and doing all that they were doing about that busy time of the year. They didn't recognize it either. I, I remember a vacation that my family took uh, several years ago. Uh, we used to go to South Carolina to visit Angie's family. And I don't know why, but we went. I thought you'd find that humorous, but maybe you'll laugh later. But it was a long way. I mean, sometimes 14 hours we would have to travel, and our girls were small, and so we decided that we would break the trip up. And so we would drive a good ways, and we'd spend the night and then drive the rest of the way the next day. Well, one of those nights that we spent on the road, we got up that morning, and I honestly don't even remember where we were. It was Georgia, maybe, Tennessee. I don't remember ever how we were getting to South Carolina. We lived in North Mississippi at the time. And I remember getting up that morning and, of course, we went through that process of where do we want to eat and we chose Cracker Barrel. And so we went to a local Cracker Barrel there and we were eating our eggs and toast and whatever we were doing there. And all of a sudden, a family got up and came from the back and as they were making their way out of the restaurant area there in the Cracker Barrel, you know what I'm talking about, all these people began to say, ooh, ah, and they ran toward him. And, you know, they were, they were patting him on the back and shaking his hand. And they were all smiling and complimentary. It was a good distance away from us, but I, I couldn't see. And I was trying to figure out, well, who is that? What in the world is going on up there? Some kind of celebrity? And so our server came back over and I said, uh, I'm sorry, did, did I miss something? Who, who was that? 
And she looked and she said, oh, and she named him. And he was a coach of a Division II school in the area who had won a division championship that year. And she said, he comes in here often with his family. He had small children himself. And he said, they always sit in the back. And she said, everybody seems to overlook him until he gets ready to leave. And then as he walks through the restaurant, you just can't, you can't miss him. Paul says that when Jesus was born, He left the portals of heaven to assume all that was here that afforded us to human beings. And he said, I need to be with them. Now, I want to stop for a minute and ask you to think about something. If God is God, and he is, and if God can do anything that he wants to do, and he can, then is is it not feasible to think that God could have saved us by another means? Sure he could. God can do anything that he wants to do, and yet God said, I know how I am going to redeem humanity, how I am going to save them. I'm going to be with them. In other words, God said, I'm not willing to be at arm's length. I'm not willing to be distanced from them in heaven. I'm going to live on planet earth with them, with the very ones that I'm going to save. A church in North Carolina was experiencing a little bit of growth and needed to relocate in order for them to build a facility that would accommodate their membership. And so as they looked into the details of what it was going to take from them to move their little church to another plot of ground that would offer them some room to grow, they discovered there was a problem. And the problem was that the founding members of their church had made out in the deed for the property, they named the owner, are you ready for this, as the Lord Almighty. And so they began to try to figure out how in the world are we going to transfer the ownership of the property here to someone else when the owner obviously has to sign the paperwork and the owner is none other than the Lord himself. And so the lawyer that they'd hired consulted a judge and the judge said, here's what you have to do. And so they put a notice in the paper and they said, in Cherokee County, we're looking for the owner of such and such Baptist church and if you're here, come forward and, you know, and so forth. We're papers there and this is what it ended. And then they had to run another statement in the local papers there and this is what it said. So be it discovered that the Lord Almighty cannot be found in Cherokee County, North Carolina. (laughs) And said ownership diverts over to the trustees of such and such Baptist church. Well, all I'm saying to you is that Christmas is a big deal. And the big deal about Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to be with us. Don't miss that. Don't overlook that. You say, well, I don't know why that's such a big deal. Have you ever been alone? Have you ever longed within your heart and your soul for human presence? Some of you have. Some of you know what I'm talking about. My stepfather died in 2010. You know we moved my mom to Clinton in September of this year. 
Recently, I had a thought about this Christmas, and I thought to myself, I'm grateful that she's closer because now she will not be alone at Christmas. Now, sure, we would go visit at some point. She lived in Pontotoc. We would go visit, and usually we tried to make it around Christmas or whatever, but I always felt guilty on, New, on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day or whatever, that we simply were not together. And sometimes we were, but a lot of times we were not. And as soon as I had that thought, the Lord reminded me, Bill, she was never alone. You may have lost a loved one this year, maybe even a spouse or best friend. And I just want to remind you that the Christmas story begins with the coming of Jesus into this world because he said, I don't want to be distanced anymore. I want to be with you. I want my presence to complement your presence. And I want us to be together. Are you aware that that's why our missionaries do what they do? I mean, I, I'm going to make this the Lottie Moon Christmas offering story whether you want me to or not, all right? 1845, <clears throat> our denomination said we need to organize ourselves so that we can feel, fulfill this great commission. 1845, that's 173 years ago I did the math. And so they said, we've got to figure out a way to find men and women who are called to go to the uttermost parts of the world and to fulfill that calling by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, it is an elaborate organization these days. You know that. But I'm here to tell you, the men and women who are on mission for God through our International Mission Board, they're not doing it in the comforts of the United States of America. They're not doing it with all the amenities that home affords them. You understand what they're doing? They're saying we need to be with the people that we've gone to reach. We need to be there with them. The second point of this is it's not that Jesus just came to be with us. He came to be like us. Paul says that very plainly here where he says that he was made in the likeness of men. Made in the likeness of men. That means that Jesus was tempted just like we're tempted. Jesus suffered just like we suffer. He got hungry. He got tired. He, he, he was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. All of those things that we go through in our life that alienates us in relationships. All of those things that we experience as human beings that makes us who we are. Think about that. Jesus was exposed to all of those kinds of things. That should bring us a little comfort. Because you see, we're not serving a God who is so great and so mighty, and He is all of those things, but yet cannot identify with us in our moment of need. Think about that. Some Sunday afternoons, I'm afforded the privilege of spending a little time with Evan and Tim, and these guys are studying for ministry and taking courses. And a lot of what our conversation is about is about what they're studying and the Bible and church life and all that kind of stuff, and it's really good stuff. I shared with them a story a couple of weeks ago that I want to share with you about a time when I was serving a church, and we had a young man who came forward and made a profession of faith. And uh, he was baptized. Our church received him gladly, and we were excited to know that he was there, and we watched him begin to grow in his faith. 
And after about two months of him being at our church, he came to me privately one day and he said, Bill, I'd like to start a Bible study group and uh, I'd like to know if you'd let me do that. And I said, well, I called him by name. I said, uh, I, we don't ever want anybody to be discouraged from a Bible study group. I said, but are you a strong enough Christian to do that? I mean, do, do you have enough Bible knowledge? I mean, it, it takes a while for you to get a handle on the scriptures and He'd not been in church until those two months, really, that he joined our church. And he said, well, probably not. He said, but, but really what I need to tell you is I want to start an AA group, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, and, and, and as part of what we do, I want, to, I want to share a devotional from week to week. And he said, can I do that? And I said, I think you can do that. And he said, would you help me find some material to do that? And so I went through the process of making sure our deacons were okay with it and the church embraced the idea and said, absolutely, we want to reach these folks. And so we simply opened a room of our church once a week for an AA group to come in. And after about two or three weeks, he kept coming back to me and he said, I've got a question about something I read there and I would read there. And I said, uh, would, would you like for me to come and meet with you? I don't know why I volunteered to do that. I didn't have time to do it anyway. But I said, would you like for me to come and meet with you and lead in the devotional time? And he said, oh, no. Oh, no, that, that can't happen. I said, oh, oh, what do you mean that can't happen? And he said, you've never had a drinking problem. I said, no, I haven't. He said, that's a requirement for joining our group. You have to understand the struggle that we go through before you can be a part of the group. And it clicked with me. And I got it, and I respected that, and I appreciated his honesty in that. And I'm reminding you that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and became a human being, he became one of us and was exposed to all that we experience in our lives. And he's not someone that we can't identify with or can't identify with us. He can, he will, he does, and we should because he was one of us. You see, our missionaries struggle with immersing themselves in the culture where they go. Literally, they go around the world. So many countries that they're a part of. Sometimes we don't even know exactly where they are or what ministry they're involved in. We simply know them by their first names or by their initials because the culture in where they are placed is not accepting to the Christian faith. It's, it's not something that they can just go public with. It's not anything that we're trying to do in secret, but it's something that we're trying to do to protect those who are there to share the gospel. This week as we pray through our prayer guide for international missions and you think about the missionaries who are there, you're going to read several names. You're going to hear about several ministries, but I want, I want you to open your mind to the idea that there are those out there who are serving and doing what God has called them to do and we don't have the privilege of knowing specifically what they're doing there, but they're about God's work. And as if immersing themselves in a foreign culture is not difficult. They have to go about it with a certain tactfulness and diplomacy to make sure that they are doing what they can do so they can stay there and cultivate those relationships with individuals so that they can meaningfully 
share the gospel. What are they doing? They're becoming like the people where they live. And they're walking that fine line to make sure that they are seen as people who are embracing the culture around them, but yet they're not compromising on their spiritual integrity and their relationship with Christ. And so we pray for them in that regard. Jesus was our first missionary in this sense as he came into the world to be with us and he became to be like us. But let me show you something here. Look at how Paul ends the passage. Look at what it says in verse 9. For this reason God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, uh, I read an article one time that talked about a man who went to the Philippines. And he said, uh, while I was in the Philippines, I, he said, I toured a lot of the area there. And he said, I stumbled upon a garbage dump that had turned into a neighborhood. People were actually bringing tents cardboard boxes and old pieces of plywood and wood that they had and he said they were living on the garbage dump and he said I asked myself why in the world would they do this they're exposed to filth and and the possibility of disease and then their tour guide said but what a better place for them to find the sustenance of what they need to survive He said, you see, these people could go live miles from the garbage dump. He said, but their only way to survive is the scavenging and collecting of food remnants here at the garbage dump. And that's what they eat. And that's what keeps them alive. And he said, these families have chosen not to live far away, but to live right here at the garbage dump where they can get what they need in order to provide for their families. Now, for you and me, that's a horrible thought. But I want to tell you, that's exactly what Jesus did. He left the glory of heaven. As a matter of fact, if if you read this passage carefully, you'll see Paul throwing in some expressions here, some words that just sort of graphically represent what Jesus had to go through. He said he emptied himself. You know what? We can't even express that in the English language, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek. It is the idea that he took everything that was a part of him and he laid it aside. Humanly speaking, we cannot do that. But yet Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, God himself in heaven as God's son, that one of the Trinity, that one of the three people that we understand as a Trinity as God reveals himself said, I will lay aside all that I am here so that I may go there. And in Jesus coming to heaven like descending down the steps of a stairway, hold that thought, came to live on earth at its best is the worst that he'd ever experienced. Like a garbage dump. Phillips Brooks, that great preacher from Boston, said every year at Christmas, God came down from heaven with a baby in his arms and he delivered that child to the world, to a world that many would reject and not accept as God's gift to them.
Paul is careful to remind us that Jesus came to earth on purpose. And his purpose was to die. He didn't just come to be with us. He didn't come to just be like us and live like us. He came to die for us. And if you and I are going to celebrate Christmas this year, we need to see a cradle and Jesus in it, a cross and Jesus on it, and a crown and Jesus under it. Because Paul says, as God understood what Jesus was doing here, he gave him a name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that means? That means that every president of the United States will one day say Jesus is Lord. That means that every potentate and monarch who's ever lived on this planet, who has ruled over a people or a nation, will one day stand before Jesus and say Jesus is Lord. You see, what they're doing is they're saying Jesus is higher and above and beyond any earthly position that ever exists. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are going to do the same. We can do it voluntarily or we can be forced to do it. But one day every person will say, Jesus is Lord. My question to you is, is he your Lord this morning? Is he your Savior? Do you know him personally? Are you walking with him day by day? Is he pastoring you as he disciples you and helps you grow in that relationship? If so, I want to remind you that Jesus in the upper room, are you ready for this? Here's what he said to his disciples. Applies to you and me. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. You say, well, I'm, I'm not a missionary. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going. No, 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 no. Where you are, write what you do. As a child of God, we are his missionaries. Stand with me this morning. Father, I begin this morning by thanking you for our wonderful missionaries who are out there on the front lines of ministry in other places of the world, fulfilling their calling. So many of them face hurdles and obstacles and difficulties that we know nothing about. But Lord, on their behalf, I pray that you will take down the barriers that you would help them overcome adversities, that they would effectively see the fruits of their ministry as they share Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to partner with them. We can always pray, and most of us can give. Others of us can even go. But Lord, this season, as we collect an offering, I pray that we'll understand that what we give is not just added to the gifts of other churches, but it is a multiplied addition. That seems to be the way you work. Help us to give lovingly, cheerfully, and generously. And let our missionaries be blessed because of it. But most of all, may the world know that Jesus is Lord. I pray, Lord, that if there's any person in this service who needs to make public a commitment to Christ, give them the freedom to come. 
make that decision public. If there are Christians here looking for a church home because we would receive members in many ways, let them come. Unite with our church family and use what gifts and abilities they have so that your church may be strengthened. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.